0: Let's pray, please. Father, thank you for giving us the treasures of your holy word. May we receive their truths with faith and love, lay them up on our hearts, and practice them in our lives. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, uh, taking a a break from the the Ten Commandments. It was a real privilege to uh, do a brief devotion for the homeschool meetup, and uh, looking into the faces of all those little kids and... I looked back at our sermon audio feed, and I haven't preached on family worship in five years, so I'm going to do it today. (laughs) Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9, this is God's Word. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might." These words which I command, which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then one more passage, Psalm 78. There, turn to the right there in your Bible, Psalm 78, Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8, Psalm 78, at the beginning, this is God's word, maskil of Asaph, listen, O my people, to my instruction, incline your ears to the words of my mouth, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. May God bless the reading of his holy word. I want to go over three things with you uh, this morning. We're going to walk through both of those passages phrase by phrase here. In a moment, but first I want to give you an exhortation and kind of a definition also what family worship is. What is this? One of the great old confessions of faith from 1677 said this in its preface. They said in 1677, And verily there is one spring and cause of the decay of religion in our day, which we cannot but touch upon and earnestly urge a redress of, and that is the neglect of the worship of God and families by those to whom the charge and conduct of them is committed. May not the gross ignorance and instability of many with the profaneness of others be justly charged upon their parents and masters who have not trained them up in the way wherein they ought to walk and when they were young, but have neglected those frequent and solemn commands which the Lord hath laid upon them, so to catechize and instruct them that their tender years might be seasoned with the knowledge of the truth of God as revealed in the scriptures, and also by their own omission of prayer and other duties of religion to their families, together with the ill example of their loose conversation, having hardened them first to a neglect and then contempt of all piety and religion, we know this will not excuse the blindness and wickedness of any but certainly it will fall heavy upon those that have been thus the occasion thereof. They indeed die in their sins, but will not their blood be required of those under whose care they were, who yet permitted them to go on without warning? Yea, led them into the paths of destruction? And will not the diligence of Christians with respect to the discharge of these duties in ages past rise up in judgment against and condemn many of those who would be esteemed such now? Several key things to notice about this. The ministers that wrote that, they did not locate the cause of religious decay in the wickedness of their surrounding culture. They did not locate the cause of decay in the church to drugs or alcohol or bad music or liberal media or bad movies. Of course, they didn't really have movies in 1677 or gambling or anything like that. But rather, they said the chief reason for the decay of religion is the living rooms of Christian people is the homes of Christians who neglect the worship of God in their living rooms in prayer and catechizing and reading scripture together, praying together. The blame for this, they said, is to be laid at the feet of those whom God's Word charges to do this, and so it's not at the feet of Satan it's not at the feet of the unbelieving world it's at the feet of Those that were supposed to do it but failed to. Those who neglect prayer, catechizing, Bible reading, and worship in families. They said the the word that they used is inure. Inure means to harden. They harden their own families by neglecting these means of grace. By neglecting family worship, Christian parents can actually ingrain in their children the neglect of the faith in Christ and finally create a contempt for it. Some of the most hardened enemies of Christianity grew up in Christian families. A little-known historical fact about Friedrich Nietzsche is that his father was a Lutheran pastor. And when he was born, he was held up in the air and they rang the church bells. Those who are blind and wicked, they'll die in their sins. And certainly, all of our kids, they all, every one of them, interacts directly, covenantally with God. I I can no more save my children than I could jump over the moon. But what about those that neglect their duties? What about those that won't pray? Men that won't leave? Men that won't open the scriptures and teach them to their wife? Won't teach them to their children? That have their own little hobbies? That have their man cave that they need to put a grenade in and blow up? What about them? Is this important stuff? This is some of the most important stuff I ever teach you about. So, what are the biblical commands to do this, and what exactly is family worship? Here's a good definition of family worship. It's a short sentence. It is the prayer, praise, and adoration given to God by all the members of one household. Family worship is the praise, prayer, and adoration given to God by all the members of one household. It consists of prayer, reading scripture, and singing. But this must never be thought of as a replacement for the local church. It's not. Who are the key players in this? The key players are always the father and the mother. We know from scripture, it is a biblical fact. The husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church, he's the leader. He's the one who's supposed to be relentlessly consistent in this matter. First Corinthians 11.3, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. Man's supposed to lead. Ephesians 6.4, and you... Fathers, it says, don't provoke your children to wrath. Bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So husbands, man, fathers, tag, we're it. God expects us to do this. He's laid this duty upon us. So I want to ask us, how are we doing with that? Does our wives' and our children's countenance reflect that we lead well in these ways? Are our children gloomy, sullen in general? What is the atmosphere like in our house? So much of that's tied up with our walk with Christ. Are our wives sorry that they're women because of the way we leap? Dad needs to be the, the principal facilitator of family worship. And the thing is, if there's not a believing father in the home, mom, mom has to do it. And you know, moms have done it in the past. Paul wrote an inspired letter, 2 Timothy 1.5. Timothy didn't have a Christian dad. Dad didn't leave family worship. Dad didn't teach him the Bible. But his mom did. And so did his grandma. 2 Timothy 1.5. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that's in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Mom and grandma did it. And God used their work to raise up a great man of God. So what is family worship? What are some other definitions of this? Archibald Alexander, first professor of Princeton Theological Seminary in 1812. He had a son named James Alexander. He wrote a wonderful little book called Thoughts on Family Worship. It's worth its weight in gold. And he defined it this way. Family worship, as the name imports, is the joint worship rendered to God by all the members of one household. As something we have to do every day, as you're going to see that is a biblical command. So what do we do in family worship? Do you need to print out a bulletin and have announcements and things like that? Well, obviously not. Another writer said this. Worship should begin with a few words of prayer and booking God's presence and blessing. A short passage from his word should follow with brief comments thereon. Two or three verses of a psalm or a favorite hymn may be sung. Close with a prayer of committal into the hands of God. And though we may not be able to pray eloquently, we ought to pray earnestly. You don't need to be super eloquent in order to pray well in your home. And so many people think, well, we can't, we can't pray as, as eloquently as the pastor that prays in, in front of us. Okay? It took years to get as eloquent. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> but seriously, some of the most memorable prayers I've ever heard or some of the most simple prayers I've ever heard. That author says, prevailing prayers are usually brief ones. Beware of wearying the younger ones. And I would add normally 20 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 maybe. Sometimes if you're really on a roll and people are asking questions, it can last longer than that. But always remember that line, beware of wearying the the young ones. Now you might be wondering, okay, that's all fine and dandy, but does the Bible really require us to do this? (coughs) Pardon me, listen. The practice of family worship has been there from the beginning of the Bible to the end. We see throughout the Old Testament, from Noah forward, the construction of altars to the Lord. And the places where people were going to settle and live, they built altars to the Lord to present sacrifices of worship to the Lord in behalf of their families. They did not worship as individuals, they worshipped as the head of a home. In Genesis 8:20, Noah built an altar to the Lord. In Genesis 12:7, Abram built an altar to the Lord. In Genesis 26:25, Isaac built an altar to the Lord. In Genesis 35, Jacob steps up and takes charge of his family. And he says to his family, "Put away the foreign gods that are among you." Job, we are told in Job 1 verse 5, So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, meaning his children. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Joshua, after the conquest and settling of the promised land, at the covenant renewal ceremony at Shechem, made the bold pronouncement in the last chapter of the book that bears his name, in Joshua twenty four, fifteen, he said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And David, after public services at the tabernacle in 2 Samuel six twenty, we're told he returned to bless his household. David had learned this lesson well from his father Jesse. We're told in 1 Samuel 20, verse 6, that Jesse conducted an annual sacrifice at Bethlehem for all the family. The practice of family worship in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 10, we're told of the godly Gentile Cornelius. It says in the inspired scripture, he was a devout man and one that feared God with his household. So this man took charge of his household and taught his household. 2 Timothy 1.5, I just read to you. Timothy had devotions with his mom and his grandma. They taught him the Bible. They read the scriptures to Timothy. They sat in the same little living room and did this all the time. We're also told of Timothy, a man who did not have a believing father. We're told in 2 Timothy 3.15, from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And how did Timothy know Scripture from infancy? Because his mother read it to him, taught it to him. His grandma read the Old Testament to him and taught it to him. Let us never forget a very critical biblical principle. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I want you to notice very carefully what that says. If anyone does not provide for his own, and I would say that extends to not just providing physically, but providing spiritually for his own. Notice it doesn't say if anyone does not save his own. We can't save our children. Godly parenting can produce submissive children, but it is not a guarantee that they will all be saved. The heads of households are called upon by God to provide physically and spiritually for their household, for the the people under their charge. And if they don't, if they do not, they have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever, it says. That's how serious these duties are. Scripture calls upon every man in particular to step up and be a leader in his home. We need to be hard workers. We, we, we ought to be self-controlled. We need to have hearts that are filled with the word of God, with Christ, with sound doctrine, with grace. It's a very heavy duty that God has given to men. But that's part of the reason why men have broader shoulders and have stronger constitutions. We're supposed to be able to do this with the help of the Lord. And I'll tell you, we live in a culture, really since the Garden of Eden, it's not just America, although it's gotten worse in recent decades in America, but men have been willing to abdicate and give away those responsibilities to their wives, to the state, to others, for many generations now in America. And it's time for this to stop. We have to, to take the mantle of that leadership and lead. It's time for men to stop being effeminate and to stop being soft. It's time for men to quit being selfish. It's time for men to put away their silly hobbies and games and other interests and to devote themselves to studying their wife so that they can love her better. Studying and loving God's word and wearing themselves out in prayer and investing their time and their energy in their wife and their children. Yes, it takes unselfishness to do that well. But that's the call God has given to us. Listen to the beginning of the visible church in the Old Testament. I love this. God calls Abram. Genesis 18, 17. The Lord God said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, that they do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And so God did not just call Abram. He gave him a very specific mission. I want you to command your children and your household to know me and to walk in my ways and to obey me. Remember Eliezer? Remember the guy that was sent? That's probably who that was, the servant that went to get a bride for Isaac. Remember how much he prayed and he prayed and he he asked God, you know, the the one that waters my camels, let her be the one. Where did he learn that? From Abram. Abram taught him how to pray, how to know the Lord. Abram took that duty very seriously. Dear dear ones, why don't we? We've got to take the same duty seriously. We command our children in our households, not by just by what we say. But but by also our priorities instruct them. How we live, what we say and how we say it. Our demeanor, our attitude, the way we react to trials and stress. That is having an influence as well. That which is important to the head of the household will become important to your children. And if church attendance and participation and study of God's word are things that constantly fall by the wayside in our homes, don't be surprised if they fall by the wayside in the lives of your children. Turn to Psalm 78. Look at Psalm 78. You actually shouldn't need to turn there. You you were just there, right? Psalm 78, verse 1. Let's walk through this phrase by phrase. Listen, O my people, to my instruction Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. Okay, so what are you supposed to say? What are you supposed to say to your family? heads of households, to to, to the wife that doesn't have a believing husband, to the husband that's wanting to lead. What is it that you tell them? You tell them the praises of the Lord. Tell them your testimony, the things that God has done in your life, the ways he's helped you to overcome sin, the way he came after you and saved you, and all the the things that he's done for you in your life, all the ways he's blessed you. And you also tell, see verse 4 there? And his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. Read to them the story of the Exodus. Read to them about the plagues, about the mighty miracles, about the resurrection of the Lord and what it means and Jesus' mighty miracles. If you're wondering, I don't know what to go to today. I don't know what to go to today. Read about the resurrection of Lazarus. It's one of the greatest things that's ever happened in the history of the world. Read John 11 to your kids today. Read John 9, the story of the man who was born blind and Jesus gave him his sight. Read the, the, the stories of, the, of all the other miracles that Jesus did. The wedding of Cana in John 2 and all the other miracles that he did. The feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. Read that stuff. Those are the praises of the Lord and the mighty works that he has done. Our children need to hear that. They need to know about those things. And if they don't, it's because we didn't tell them. Remember that passage? It's one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. Judges 2 verse 10 Okay, you don't need to look it up, just, just listen. Judges 2.10, every time I read back through the Pentateuch and then start working through Joshua, Judges, it says, after the generation that came out of, of Egypt and, and, uh, and they, they died, and then a new generation arose that didn't know the Lord or what he had done for Israel. And you think, why didn't the generation that rose up know who the Lord was or what he had done for Israel? Because a whole generation of parents didn't tell him. They just didn't tell them. You know what that generation did? They served Baal. The next generation did a nosedive. The whole book of Judges is just serving Baal and all the punishment. And it goes back to parents that didn't do what Psalm 78 says. Look at verse four again. We will not conceal them from their children. We won't conceal the doctrines of scripture from their children. Notice not just our children, but their children. If I fail to disciple my kids... I'm sinning not just against them and against God. I'm sinning against my father. Because my children are his children. You see the way that's worded in verse 4? We will not conceal them from their children. From our father's children. If my kids do not tell their kids about the things of God. And don't read the Bible to them. And don't teach them the gospel. And don't call upon them to repent. Not only are they sinning against their kids. They're sinning against me. Because their kids are my children. This is supposed to be a multi-generational thing. Look at verse five. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. You see that? See how clear that is? Whose job is the education of the next generation? It's mom and dad, it's parents. Verse six, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born that they may arise and tell them to their children. Verse seven, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. And you see, as I recall, it doesn't verse nine say the children of Ephraim, when they were faced with battle, what they do, they turned and ran. They didn't want any part of it. Why? Because their parents didn't tell them about the things of God. So I want to make a call to disciples, to heads of households. I want you to look at the other passages. Look back at, turn back to Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. And as you're turning there, I want you to think about this question. How often do we sit in our homes, walk by the way, lie down and rise up? Once a month? That's every day, isn't it? This is a daily life integrated project. Look at it. Look at verse 1. 1 and 2. Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. So... The, the educational process of teaching about the things of God to our children. It is a multi-generational project. Who is responsible before God to teach your children the Christian faith? You. Who's responsible to do that ultimately? You. What's the church's role? To equip you to do it. Okay, I've, I've already had 10. I can't disciple anyone else's kids. You are responsible to disciple your own children. Who's responsible to teach your grandchildren the faith? According to the law of God, you are responsible to do that too. See that in verse two? Look at it. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. Churches are to equip parents to disciple their children and their grandchildren. Yes, the pastors and the teachers and the elders and the older folks at church and your friends will always teach children directly themselves. They'll, They'll also have an influence on your children, but the primary disciples and teachers of children are their parents. That's Old Testament teaching, that's New Testament teaching. Look at verses 3 through 5. See it? O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, and a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Listen carefully to verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be in your heart. Verse six is the key to everything else. For us to pass the words of God, the doctrines of scripture, the doctrines about God and man and the fall, sin, covenant of works, covenant of grace, baptism, of the Lord's Supper, justification, and sanctification. For us to pass those things on to the next generation, they've got to be in our hearts. They've got to be things that we treasure. And that's why all of us need to be diligent students of the word of God passionate in our study of it, excited about its doctrines and teaching them even when we're at low points and aren't as excited about our walk with Christ, consistent in that, nourished by its truths and promises, its warnings, its teachings, all of it, the word of God, the scriptures, we're told, shall be in your hearts, it says. That's the preface to verse 7. These things shall be on your heart. You can almost hear Moses just preaching this to the people of Israel before they take the promised land. These things need to be things that you treasure in your hearts. And look at verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. The discipleship of our families is an all day, everyday work. It is life integrated. It's lifelong we speak about scriptural truth to children when we sit, when we walk, when we lie down, when we rise up. So I would encourage you. I, I know how discouraging and how, how difficult this can be. But don't miss the opportunities to speak of the things of God to your children. And if you've let family worship kind of fall by the wayside or have not been as consistent, you need to repent to your wife, to your children. And let them know, it's my job to do this. I'm supposed to do this every day. I'm supposed to open the Bible and read it. Every day to you all. And I need, this needs to be more in my heart. Lord, help me to have a greater love for the truth and a, a, a deeper passion to spread that to you all. You know, fathers, we're it. The, the, the buck stops here. I, I'm the head of my family. I, I, I'm covenantally the head of my home. I need to be the one that teaches these things. Look at verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, And they shall be as frontals on your forehead. That's really a figure of speech, meaning everything that scripture says is to affect what we do with our hands and to be on our forehead is supposed to be in our minds, in our hearts, animating our actions. It doesn't mean literally write it on your forehead or whatever. Verse nine, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. If you want to do that, that's fine. It's easy to feel overwhelmed by the great duty of discipling a family or discipling another person even. It's hard to know where to begin But I'd like to suggest to you again, Deuteronomy 6 verse 6 is the key to all of it. Look at it again. You see verse 6? These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You see what he's saying? The Holy Spirit of God is not just saying, I want you to transfer the data from your brain to their brain. I want you to have an affection for this in your heart. Then you'll be able to teach this stuff diligently to your children. When it comes to discipling families, especially our kids, to follow Jesus and his word, and we, we want them to, to do that. We want them to repent and believe the gospel, and we're heartbroken when they don't. I want to warn you about some things. It's easy to be sidetracked on this task. We can, we can be selfish in our desires for our children, wanting them to look good so that we look good as parents. Trying to make a happy home that, that can be become an idol, becoming cranky or irritable when it's not happening the way you think it should, and People aren't responding to your efforts the way that they should and things like that. It can so much become an idol. It can become about us rather than trying to lead them to Christ. We can feel like so much of a failure at times that what's the point of even trying anymore? We can also emphasize outward behavioral conformity. And by the way, that's not hard to do. It's not hard to get behavioral conformity to happen. But what is it that we're really wanting? We're really wanting the Holy Spirit of God to open their eyes to see the truth. The key to everything, dear ones, it's always the same thing. Why do we we become cranky or we, we despair? We get down in the dumps. Our own personal walk with Jesus is not what it should be. Our own love for him is not burning as bright as it once did. You know, the trials that we go through and the hard things that we have to see, they wouldn't affect us. They wouldn't destroy us the way that they often do if our own walk with the Lord was closer. Nothing will affect our relationships more with others than our own intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, should we be concerned about we want to shelter our children from negative influences? Of course. You'd be crazy not to. Should we be interested in their behavior and getting them to be obedient, be respectful? Of course. Should we endeavor to have a happy home life? Yeah, of course. But the foundation of all of this is what scripture calls the heart. The heart. The heart is the one thing I can't get at. The heart is the one thing only God can get at. You put the right things in front of the kids, you put the right things in front of your spouse, you put it in in front of them again and again and again, that God is the only one that can make it come alive there. Many of you, I'm sure, have read the book, Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. It's a great book. There's a lot of really good stuff in there. We're not merely wanting to transfer information to our children. We want them to have the same affection for the Lord Jesus and for God and for his word that we have. But if we're cold in that devotion and cold in our own walk with Christ, it's very hard to transfer cold affections to anybody. So the key to everything else, it's always the same thing. Everything wrong in marriages, everything wrong with family, everything wrong in our personal lives, everything wrong in friendships. If you peel away all the layers of the onion, it's always the same thing, idolatry. Why am I a crank? A bad mood, not being as sweet and loving as I should be because I have an idolatry problem. I'm not walking as closely with Christ as I need to be. That's always the issue. And that's the key to winning over the hearts of the people that we disciple is in the midst of trials, are we still able to thrive? In the midst of the hardships, am I still walking closely with the Lord and having joy in him? Even if I'm grieving over something, is there still joy there that can't be touched by earthly circumstances? We want them to have what we have. A genuine love for God. A love for him that perseveres through the hard stuff and and still burns bright. We want them to be saved from their sins. And so we ourselves must live a life of repentance and brokenness before them. It's good to be transparent to them about our failures and the ways that we sin. The ways that maybe right now, today, lately, we haven't been doing real well. The consistent call of scripture to heads of families, it's all the way through the Bible. Uh, Back up a couple chapters there in Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. Just to give you a sample here. See if you can tell that this was a bit of a hobby horse for Moses. Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. Deuteronomy 4, verse 9 says, only give heed to yourselves and keep your soul diligently so that you don't forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days of their life on earth and that they may teach their children. You hear that? Jump over a few more chapters. Deuteronomy 11. The last one from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. 18. And as you're turning there, about once every three or four chapters, he says it again and again and again in the book of Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy eleven eighteen. Deuteronomy 11, 18. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your sons, Talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down and when you rise up. You see the pattern? See the consistent theme? Who's supposed to do this? We are. If you have kids, if you're married, you're the one that's got to do this. We read that passage earlier, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. One of the last prophets that God sent to the southern kingdom, Jeremiah pronounce judgment. Listen to this, Jeremiah ten twenty five. Pour out your wrath on the nations that don't know you and on the families that don't call on your name. You hear that? Not just on the individuals that don't call on your name, but the families that don't. And then thirdly, this morning, I want to give you an exhortation to be patient and to love, to have love and patience with your kids and with your family in his wonderful booklet the duties of parents jc ryle said this now children's minds are cast in much the same mold as our own sternness and severity of manner chill them and throw them back it shuts up their hearts and you will weary yourself to find the door but let them only see that you have an affectionate feeling towards them that you are really desirous to make them happy and do them good, that if you punish them, it is intended for their profit, and that, like the pelican, you would give your heart's blood to nourish their souls. Let them see this, I say, and they will soon be all your own. But they must be wooed with kindness if their attention is ever to be won. And surely reason itself might teach us this lesson. Children are weak and tender creatures, and as such, they need patient and considerate treatment we must handle them delicately like frail machines lest by rough treatment we do more harm than good they're like young plants and need gentle watering often but a little at a time isn't that good counsel we must exercise the greatest of patience that wonderful fruit of the holy spirit Have you noticed that you've gone to levels of patience you didn't know were possible Since you got married and had children, they're going to sin, and so are you. So am I. They're not going to be perfect, and neither will you, neither will I. Why, Why will those kids never be perfect? Because we're their parents. Sinners beget sinners. When we consider the depths of patience God shows us constantly, how much more ought we to be ready to overlook our children's failings? We can't expect them to get it all at once. Remember J.C. Ryle's line there? They're like young plants. They need gentle watering, often but a little at a time. You know, there was a joke in my family you know, er- early on in having kids. I gave one of my real little kids a, a-, a book for one of their birthdays called 365 Days with John Calvin. No five-year-old is going to want to read that. <laughs> Be an encourager of others. Especially family and children take every opportunity to consider what they do well and praise it. Many of us maybe I, we had parents that were nothing but critics. They, they only seemed to notice everything we, we did that was wrong. That's a terrible thing that generally, generationally you should work to break free from. Take every opportunity. Anything they do well, praise it, encourage it. Hebrews 10:24: "I can't think of anyone else better for you to do this with than your own kids and your own spouse. Let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. Proverbs twelve twenty five. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. There's a lot of heads of households in this room that could use a good word, that could use a, a kind, encouraging thought. Write your children, write your friends, write loved ones, your spouses, notes. Pull them aside and tell them how much you love them. Take time to speak a good word to them. I mean, think about that. The Holy Spirit of God told us this. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. Your words can do so much good in your own family and they can do so much evil. And I've told you all before, I've had physical injuries. I've been hurt and sick before and I've gone through some pretty physically painful things in my life, but nothing, nothing has hurt me more than the the, the things that people have said to me or written to me. So use your tongue to be the law of kindness to people and mercy and encouragement. That's why God has those passages in his word. Matthew Henry, in a wonderful sermon, this sermon was actually discovered not too long ago. Someone discovered it in a pile of manuscripts and it had never been published. And it was a sermon about family worship. And Matthew Henry wrote this, countenance everything that is good and praiseworthy in your children and servants. It is as much your duty to commend and encourage those in your family who do well as to reprove and admonish those who do amiss. Do we really get that? It is just as much my duty to praise everything good I see as it is to pull aside and correct what's wrong. I think so often we just correct stuff and we don't praise the good enough. We should do that. Henry says, if you take delight only in blaming that which is culpable and are backward to praise that which is laudable, you give occasion to suspect something of an ill nature in you. Not becoming a good man, much less a good Christian. It should be a trouble to us to have to give a reproof, but a pleasure to say with the apostle in 1 Corinthians 11 2, now I praise you. When Paul wrote his letters, he was eager to praise them for everything good that, the, that he saw in them before he laid into to them about everything bad. So we should do the same thing with our own families, with our own spouse, with our own kids. Eager to praise and almost reluctant and showing heartache to have to criticize and correct. Henry says, most people will be easier led than driven. Isn't that a great statement? That most people are, are easier to lead than to stand behind them with a bullwhip and try to get them to go forward. And he says, and we all love to be spoken well to when you see anything that is hopeful and promising in your inferiors. If you see anything of a good and godly disposition, much more anything of a pious affection to the things of God, you should contrive to encourage it. (laughs) You must indeed be careful not to provoke your children to wrath, lest they be discouraged. And as to your servants, it is your duty not to threaten them, yet you must also, with holy zeal and resolution and the meekness of wisdom, keep good order in your families and set no wicked thing before their eyes, but witness against it. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Watch out for the movies and the songs and the artists. Watch out. Everything around you, the whole culture around you is so toxic to everything you're trying to do for your children. Henry says, be afraid of having wicked servants in your houses, lest your children learn their way and get a snare to their souls. Drive away with an angry countenance all that evil communication which corrupt good manners, that your houses may be habitations of righteousness and sin may never find shelter in them, end quote. That little sermon was published as a little booklet, a little paperback. It's called A Church in the House. It's wonderful. It's worth its weight. I'm, I'm glad in God's providence somebody found it and republished it. As we seek to lead our families in the worship of God, let us remember that part of our duties towards those children is to discipline them promptly. I want to encourage you, do not count to three. Because what you're basically saying is, you can define me for three seconds. You issue a command. Make sure you're going to back it up with a spanking if it's not obeyed. Proverbs twenty two fifteen. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Proverbs thirteen twenty four. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. I've heard every excuse under the sun not to obey these passages. But the fact is, if you're self-controlled, consistent, and loving in the way you discipline your children for direct disobedience, you will almost never have to do it anyway. If you're consistent, if they know you're serious when you issue a command to them, and that if they disobey, they're going to get stung a little, They will attach a consequence to that behavior very quickly and they'll be happier, healthier, and there'll be more peace in your house. But I want to tell you, self-control is the key. When we have to discipline our children, so often it becomes about us, doesn't it? You're inconveniencing me. You're irritating me. You're putting me out by making me drop whatever I was doing to have to deal with this issue rather than making about the fact that they're in rebellion against God. And therefore they're in danger. And that should be more important to me than whatever I was doing. If parents discipline their children in anger, then they're teaching those children how to let anger get the best of them. Listen to the example. A man who did not do this well. Just listen to God's word. 1 Samuel 2.22 Now Eli was very old and He heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do these things? For I hear of your evil doings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt and Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place? Listen, and you honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Hear what he's saying? He would not discipline those boys when they were little. And the prophet says to Eli, you honor your sons more than me. We don't discipline our kids. It's because we are honoring them more than God. Those who will not lead their families in worship, those who do not read the Bible in their homes, those who will not discipline and correct and instruct their children, the word of God is clear. We're honoring our children more than God them. And the families which don't call upon God, they invite his fury upon themselves. The prophet Jeremiah Call down the fury of God on the families that don't call upon his name. I want to say it's important all of us recognize that at the end of the day, as I said, our children interact directly with God. We can no more save them than we could have saved ourselves. Our duty is simply to obey the Lord, to teach them the faith. God's word says that he will be a God to us and to our children after us. That's a, that's a statement of the word of God. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. God is sovereign over the salvation of the whole world. We can trust him with our children. All we can do is trust and obey. The results are in his holy, good, and merciful hands. So just a couple more words about the importance of family worship. I just want to I want you to see the historical impact of this. One Puritan writer said this for your sakes, dear friends, I presume. Again, to appear upon the public stage, to be your faithful monitor, to prompt you to your duty, and to promote the work of God in your souls and the worship of God in your families. And I know not how a minister can employ his time, studies, and pen better next to the conversion of particular souls than impressing upon householders a care of the souls under their charge. This hath a direct tendency to public reformation. Religion begins in individuals and passes on to relatives, and lesser spheres of relationship make up greater. Churches and commonwealths consist of families. There's a general complaint of the decay of the power of godliness and inundation of profaneness, and not without cause. I know of no better remedy to this than domestic piety, he called it. C.H. Spurgeon. Last quote I'm going to read to you and then we'll pray. He said, family prayer and the pulpit are the bulwarks of Protestantism. Depend on it. When family piety goes down, the life of godliness will become very low. In Europe, at any rate, seeing that the Christian faith began with a converted household, we ought to seek after the conversion of all our families and to maintain within our houses the good and holy practice of family worship. So I exhort you as I exhort myself, be consistent. I know we have a million things going on. We have work, we have stress, we've got family stuff going on, but make sure heads of households that you are ruthlessly consistent. As a family, every day we sit down, even if it's five, 10 minutes, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna read a short passage of scripture, make a couple comments about it. We're gonna sing the doxology maybe that we're doing at church and then we're done. But you need to do that every day. We were redeemed to be God's worshipers and we've got to teach the rising generation that worship doesn't just happen on Sundays. It is our way of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the shed blood of Christ that he has truly forgiven us of all of our sins by bearing their punishment at Calvary. Lord, help us in gratitude to you and thankfulness to you to strive to be consistent in the instruction and discipline of our children to do family worship every day. We may not know everything about the Bible, but if we have one, we can read it. And we can read it out loud. Help us to have the courage and the integrity to lead well in our homes. And we pray that you would save all of our children and that they would do the same with their own kids and worship God and their families. We ask in Christ's name, amen.